1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither, but hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. This episode is brought to you by Grip Pack Calls. GP Calls epitomizes the definition of grit, which is the courage, resolve, and strength of character to see the task through. When you pick up the easiest blowing duck and goose calls on the market, you'll have the courage to make the transition to the next level of field or competition calling. The boys in the shop don't just turn durable barrels and inserts, but they spend the time to produce the highest quality internal read system possible. With the original True Grit, Nitty Gritty, Trickster, and Wood Splitter Duck Call, or the Big Hurt and Mo Crack and Goose Calls, you can produce a more versatile, realistic, and higher quality sound with all the ease of a double read. Whether you're looking to up your game or you're just starting out, let a Grip Pack Call work just as hard for you as the Grip Pack crew did to develop and bring you the next level of quality with easy blowing calls. Visit them at gpcalls.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Grip Pack Calls. Find your grit. Welcome to the Foul Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit and educate new hunters while entertaining the rest of you. Without new hunters and the mentorship of those more seasoned, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So get the word out, turn the volume up, and enjoy the show, because you're on the foul front. This episode also brought to you in part by Hunt Hickory Creek. And new to Hunt Hickory Creek this year is their Central Kansas Lodge. They're going to be running hunters from the end of October all the way through January. And their main hunting area is located between Kavira National Refuge and Cheyenne Bottoms. Now, Central Kansas is a special place for waterfowl hunting. And during the peak migration, these refuges hold hundreds of thousands, if not close to millions of birds at one time. So for your chance of a hunt of a lifetime, head on over to HuntHickoryCreek.com. Because if you're going to hunt Kansas, hunt Hickory Creek. This week's episode is also brought to you by Goose Ninja Outdoors and MDR Custom Woodwork. Now, today we've got a really cool guest. We have Tony Vandemore. 
uh, of Habitat Flats, who's going to be talking all about habitat management um, and just a lot of things duck and goose uh, hunting related. Um, but before we get into that, we want to invite you on over to the Fowl Front Waterfowl Podcast Group. We're going to be doing a week-long 4th of July week uh, giveaway. We're going to be giving away um, a three-day, four-night hunt Hickory Creek waterfowl hunt in central Kansas. Uh, we're going to be giving away a grit pack call. We're going to be giving away a goose ninja lanyard, uh, a duck muck uh, lanyard, and quite a few other things, honestly. I, I don't want to spend the whole time you know, talking about them, but head on over there for your chance to check it out. Um, and yeah, we hope to see you there. Now, Tony, do you want to go ahead and give us probably an introduction is probably not necessary. Most people know who you are, uh, but do you want to talk a little bit about how you turned your passion of waterfowl hunting into a career and something that you're, you're doing every day and how you got so big in the industry? Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, hunting's been, excuse me, hunting's been something that, that I've done as far back as I can remember. I mean, it was just kind of, that's what we did on the, on the weekends when I was a kid. My, I'd go hunting with my dad and grandfather and uncles. They, they used to say they took me to the blind in diapers. I can't remember if they did or not, but I know as far back as I can remember, that's all we ever did was, was go hunting on the weekends. And growing up, my, my grandfather had a couple duck clubs on the Illinois River and I really, really enjoyed going there. I mean, I loved it. It was like a, a playground for a kid. Beautiful flooded timber along the Illinois River. And uh, I just wanted wanted something like that when I got older. And uh, I came to school in Missouri, and uh, it seemed like the ducks were shifting a little bit further west the older I got. And when I came to school in Missouri, I found all the, the ducks that were here and, and never left. And the way oh, Habitat Flat started, it was, uh, you know, the first farm I bought, Aaron and I or Macaulay, I met them. They had a farm three-quarters of a mile down the down the creek and we got to hunting a lot together and became really good friends and our other partner Dan Doherty lives right there and we were all hunting together and, and spending a lot of you know time and resources managing farms and you know when you're only hunting with a few buddies you just can't you can't utilize them all because you know you only have you can only kill so many ducks in one day so we <laughs> right. started taking I had a snow goose business and and we started taking a few duck clients um, for habitat flats and as it grew as we kept buying farms we added a few more spots every year and you know now it is what what we have today we hunt pretty much 32 people about every day oh wow you know that's a, you know that's a, a critical thing and i think people think about it when they're deer hunting a lot more is you know talking to their their neighboring properties and making sure everybody's on the same page with um, you know management and if you can pool resources like that, that's one thing that we always, you know, recommend uh, to our listeners is, you know, getting your, your poor guy's duck club uh, together and pooling your resources to make sure that you can have, you know, maximum opportunity. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's hard to have one place that's good for 60 days of duck season. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so how do... You know, how else did you, you, you started in, you know, you went to college in Missouri. Um, did you do anything, um, you know, after college with, or was it straight into waterfowl or? Well, I, I actually, I got drafted uh, by San Diego, like the 25th round, I think it was. I got a Big Mac and a plane ticket, went and played ball for Nice. And it was a really cool, really cool experience, but it got hurt. And when I came, came back, um, Excuse me. I went into commercial insurance because it afforded me the opportunity to be out of the office a lot, hunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, what is it with? I is something about baseball and waterfowl hunting. I just I feel like every other guy I talk to, you know, something about something about baseball and you know, like waterfowl. You know, some there's a there's a connection there. So. Yeah, it, it you know there's a lot of ball players that hunt. It's just a good good setup. You got you got your ball in the summer, and then you got your ducks in the fall and winter. 
All right. So I guess let's let's get into like a little summer update. Um, I pulled this from your, your website and it says, uh, for some, waterfowl season is defined by dates on a calendar. Uh, for me, you, it is a, a passion that lasts year round. Um, so what's going on at Habitat Flats this time of year and what's keeping you busy and what you got coming up? Well, this, this time of year, actually, you know, a lot of people think that, that hunting season is the busiest, and, and hunting season is really a vacation. This time of year is the busiest by far for me. Um, <clears throat> just got done planting crops. Uh, we got all that squared away. All the corn and beans are in the ground. And now we're starting to manage wetlands, which the wetlands are a heck of a lot more work than ag ground. Uh, you know, ag ground, you plant it and spray it a couple times and it's it's good to go but the wetlands you're you're constantly trying to control invasive species to make sure you get good moist soil foods and you know we we do slow drawdowns and try to promote the the good natural food growth like smart weed and millet but invariably there's going to be areas where invasive species like spike rush come in and, and if they're left unchecked they'll take over a marsh and and really leave it with with very little waterfowl food value right what's you know in missouri what's the biggest uh you know the biggest uh problem down there the probably the one that we have the biggest problem with in the wetlands is spike rush and it'll grow left unchecked it it keeps growing and growing and spreading and it gets so thick that nothing else comes up through it so what what we're doing now is you know we're we're spraying areas of spike rush and and killing it and we're disking up areas and uh keeping it clean and then here in another couple three weeks we'll go in and and plant Japanese millet uh try to get try to get something good growing there and then really it it helps because next year it'll it'll come back in in millet or natural foods you just got to get that that spike rush under control and then it'll, right. it'll open the door back up for the natural food source. Is there any, uh, like, telltale, like, uh-oh, like this is going to be, you know, like a, a particularly bad season for that? Um, or is it, what is it that, you know, gets kind of out of control? Or is it once you got it managed, as long as you, you know, keep maintaining it, it it's pretty easy? Well, the, the hardest part with all this management stuff is is the weather. I mean, you, you've got it all, you know, at the end of the year, I'll sit down with my notebook and I'll map out my plans for each one of the farms. You know, this is what I'm going to do here. This is what I'm going to do here. This is when I'm going to do it. And invariably, Mother Nature comes in and throws you a curveball. And usually, yeah. you know, plans A, B, and C are off the table. So you're you're scrambling and starting on a plan B. But that's probably the, the hardest thing because, you know, like the the worst one here, spike rush, it does extremely, extremely well. It thrives in really, really wet environments. So the trouble with that is when it's wet like that, you can't get in there to control it. Yeah. I mean, you can keep it <clears throat> you can keep it sprayed and get it set back some, but you can't get it you can't disc it up, you can't really work anything. So what you're trying to do then is is to get it sprayed and get a good kill and then let the natural stuff hopefully release, release up through there. Right, right. Now, do you have a, de- a degree in in this type of thing, or did you just kind of learn everything on the on the fly and through research and boots on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a degree. My degree's in marketing. Um, my uncle managed a couple, helped manage a couple of refuges in Illinois. He's taught me a lot. And uh, everything else I've learned through trial and error through the years. And luckily, I've made a lot of errors and, and been able to learn from them and kind of have, you know, you never have it totally figured out. I'm always learning new stuff, but but we've got ways right. of doing things now that, that have worked for us for several years. So Nice, nice. Now, uh, I know you kind of touched on it already, but the – you got a pretty good thing going with Habitat Flats there, and a lot of hard work and dedication has been put into that. Um, and I was just kind of curious if we could just get a quick, like maybe a rundown of, you know, the evolution of how it came to be. What did it start out as? Um, you know, was it just ag fields, and um, or you know, like what's the story of Habitat Flats? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, Habitat Flats was was basically just ag field. I mean, it was just an idea that, that we put together to create excellent habitat. I mean, one of the first farms 
that I leased was was kind of next door to the refuge, and it was not managed. I mean, it was just flooded crop stubble, and we had a few good days, killed a few ducks out of it. And I always said, you know, if you could if you could make this look like the refuge with standing corn, you know, well managed, why wouldn't it be excellent? And, you know, some people, ah, it's too small. You're not going to compete with the refuge and all that. Well, anyway, we got it bought, and uh, the first year it was full of mallards. You know, just the first year we went in and, and, and started managing it, and it worked, and it was kind of like, whoa, this is pretty cool. And uh, it just kind of took off from there. Um, we've always – we've never wanted to sacrifice quality for quantity. So when we first started, we only ran – you know, we built a lodge to sleep 24 people uh, to run four groups of six snow goose hunters. But we only ran eight duck hunters at, at a time that first year. And then as we as we kept buying farms, we'd add a couple more spots on the schedule, um, just to ensure that we always had had excellent hunting. Yeah. And now now we've got, geez, I don't know, seventy some blinds, and and we hunt, you know, thirty two people a day. You know, there's a lot of stuff getting rested every day. Right. You know, and that's right. a that's a big part of it. I mean, they got to have they got to be able to rest, or they're going to jet. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now these, you just said 72 blinds. Um, I could barely upkeep my one blind that I do have. Um, what kind of, you know, maintenance do you have to do to these things all year? Are these, you know, are you, are you building these things out of wood? Are you, you know, in certain hard blinds, um, pit blinds, stuff like that? They're both. I mean, we've got a lot of, a lot of pit blinds buried out in the fields. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to do a whole lot to them except before the season. You got to pump them all out, cambo them up, uh, and then in the timber, in the timber, we build big wooden box blind, like stilt blinds. They're big, they're yep. comfortable. Um, usually, have all the boys come in for a couple work weekends throughout the summer, and uh, we'll knock out blinds. And you know, there's not a ton of maintenance on them either, other than than cameling them up every year. But but getting all the all the pits and blinds ready. I mean, it's a it's a three week chore come fall every year. You you must be a better carpenter than I am because uh I got I got a deer stand that every time I go back to that thing up in Nebraska I've you know, I got dang it, I guess I'm hunting from the ground. Um so but, we've gotten better uh, yeah. we've gotten better through the years. Some of the first ones we built were uh they were pretty shady. Yeah, I, I think those are still fun, kind of like an homage to your, you know. Uh, you, you know where you came up from, and like you know, oh yeah, kind of how much you've evolved. So. I mean, I still like just taking a knee out in the in the flooded corn, you know, with the sun at your back and and shooting them close. I mean, there's everybody likes different things. I mean, the pits and the blinds are nice and they're comfortable, but the grand majority of the time, if I'm in the timber, I'm standing out outside the blind by a tree where I can kind of see and hear a little bit better. Yeah, so I've been um, I've been hunting for most of my life, but um, only recently, like maybe five years now, that I've been hunting waterfowl. And uh, I was down in El Paso, New Mexico, um, Texas, Oklahoma, that area. And uh, I'm from Nebraska, and I went up and I hunted a, a pit blind with my my buddy in one of his cornfields for the for the first time this uh, this last winter. And I think I uh, you know. That 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 got me. That opened my eyes, and I was like, "Dang, it's pretty nice to be sitting down here in this, you know, twenty foot, thirty foot long uh, pit blind with heaters and breakfast and absolutely, yeah, yeah." <laughs> yeah, yeah there's something to be said about. Comfortable. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, um, so recognizing that hunter numbers are decreasing, and um, those that do go out, they're are more and more concentrated on less quality public hunting land. Uh, one of the biggest, in my opinion, uh, deterring factors to retaining and recruiting hunters um, is land access and opportunity. And I think it's critical that we create all the opportunities on private land that's not being managed for waterfowl habitat that we can. Public land, you know, public land is public land. And um, I'll always hunt a little bit of it each year. And it's vital um, to, you know, uh, hunters nationwide. But I kind of think of it almost as my obligation or kind of my duty now. Um, that I'm evolving um, as a waterfowler and a conservationist and stuff like that to relieve the pressure on that limited resource and branch out and spend some of my own time, sweat, and money into private land. 
And I just kind of wanted to get your, your take on that. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we're definitely kind of at a critical time here with, with hunter numbers going down. Um, fortunately, I wish there were more states like, like Missouri. Um, the public hunting opportunities in Missouri are exceptional. Uh, back in the late seventies, there's an eighth of a cent sales tax put in place on everything in the state that goes to the Department of Conservation. So they are, they're well funded. The, the refuges and the state areas and the public areas are very well managed. You know, they have the, the money and resources to, to manage them because, you know, managing on a, on a large level is, I mean, it's costly without, without question. Um, but because they're well funded, they're able to do that. I mean, they're flooded corn. There's excellent moist soil. Um, but it's, it's good. Good public hunting opportunities, and I wish there was was more emphasis on that in other other parts of the country. On the private land side, you know, like Kansas has the the walk in hunting area, you know, the the Weha program, mm-hmm. and that's that's a great program. Um, you know, I don't know what what type of waterfowl opportunities there are on there. I don't hunt in Kansas a lot anymore. Um, I'm sure there's probably some decent dry fielding spots, and you probably shoot shoot a few ducks and geese on some of the ponds on that ground, but obviously it's, it's good deer and turkey hunt. Right. I mean, there's, there's definitely programs out there. There, there could stand to be a lot more. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, it's something that I've, I, you know, kind of coming in the last five years and seeing it almost maybe a fresh, like a little fresh perspective, but it's kind of, you know, why aren't there more, <laughs> access programs you know you see uh people piling up on these you know these successful lakes and and it's a you know it's a mad rush and that's that can be kind of fun on opening weekend um but it gets a little tiring uh, going out through throughout the season um and the, the the hunter that's you know only going out four or five times a year which is that's pretty average um for for most waterfowl hunters um they're not going to they don't get to put a lot of time and effort into securing private leases or um, anything like that. But, you know, th- those guys stop hunting, those gals stop hunting, and, you know, we lose a lot of money. You know, there's so. – that's it. I mean, you know, people, I think, sometimes overwhelmed at the thought of leasing ground. Uh, and it can be very inexpensive. You know, back – whatever. I mean, say you hunt four or five times a year, if there's – 10 or 15 of you even go in on a spot. I mean, it makes it, makes it very reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously, you know, I think here in Kansas and especially down in Oklahoma, you, you do run into a little bit with the, um, the kind of the lease competitions between, uh, what you'd call the, the average Joe's and then the, some outfitters, you know what I mean? Uh, and so you really do have to, I wouldn't, you know, if you find a good duck property, um, honestly, a lot of times you can, you can get away with just permission on, on the property, um, for a while until somebody hears you shooting her up and then, and then you, you know, you might not have that property next year. Um, but, uh, that's just kind of the way it is. And, um, I think if you have a little bit of money up front for that landowner, uh, he's a lot more keen to to tell another guy no or have you you know cut in on it. So, especially like on the on the dry field side, I mean, you know, farmers are. I grew up in a in a farming community, seven hundred people in the town we're lodged at now is one hundred and forty people. I mean, farmers farmers are good people for the most part, very easy to get along with. Um, you know, a little goes a long way. Taking them a, a ham at Christmas or stopping in in the off season and saying hello and you know dropping off a, a ham or whatever. I mean, I think the trouble a lot of people run into they might stop and ask permission and get it for the day and then they just disappear after that. They don't stop back in and, and say thank you. They don't stop back in the summer and, and say hello and then they show up the next year and want to hunt. Oh, somebody else hunting. Well, that stinks. You know, it's got to be somebody that, that leased it or whatever. Well, maybe not. I mean, maybe it's just because you didn't put in the, the time to to keep in touch. Right. I, and I always tell them, hey, I've got a truck and I've got tools. Um, 
and strong back. So if you need anything done around here and, and I know there, there is a little bit of ten- tentativeness with that because as soon as you, you know, trade work for hunting permission, you're, you're not covered by that. Uh, most states have that, um, oh, the law where it kind of lets you, um, if you're giving somebody free permission, you're not liable. Um, right, right. So, and I know some people, you know, do get a little tentative around that kind of thing, but yeah, it goes a long ways, um, to offer to, you know, fix a fence. And I always tell them, Hey, you know, if you got me on your property, you know, it's going to get, it's going to be cleaner when I left, uh, then, you know, then I found it. And, uh, that's an extra set of eyes out there covering your, your land. And a lot of landowners really appreciate that, especially if I put up trail cams and stuff like that and inform them, Hey, you do have poachers that utilize this area or, Hey, you tracking, you've got like, you know, <laughs> you got this portion of the fence that's down and, um, you got cattle moving freely across these two. Oh, you know, that kind of thing. So. Yeah. You always hear the horror stories. I mean, you go in and talk to somebody and they're like, nah, I don't think I'm going to let you hunt because the last people I did left a huge mess out there. I mean, that, that kind of stuff just can't happen if you want to keep hunting, hunting people's private no. ground, you know, cutting ruts or leaving trash. I mean, it's our, it's our resource, it's our duty to, to clean up after ourselves and, and keep it beautiful. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, in your opinion, what, uh, what are the most important habitat conditions, uh, to create for duck hunting habitat and duck hunting opportunity? What are the most important types of habitat to have? Yeah. What, you know, like the, uh, food or is it water or shelter or, you know, like what are we, yeah, what, what's the most important thing to concentrate on? Foremost, they're going to, they're going to need, you know, they're going to need refuge. I mean, I hear a lot of people say, ah, you don't need refuge. They'll find a place to sit. And that's, that's true, but if they don't have refuge, they're going somewhere else. Um, I mean, food-wise, they you know their nutritional needs change throughout the year to pace the, depending on the the temperature. So, I wouldn't say, hey, you've got to have all flooded corn or you got to have this, you got to have that. I mean, I like a, a good variety. I mean, moist soil stuff early. They eat a lot of a lot of bugs and invertebrates early in the year. Later on, when it's cold, you know they'll they'll jump over to the hot foods like corn, whether it be flooded or out in the dry fields. Um, that's, it's hard to say what one one thing you need the most because it's kind of a combination of all of them. I mean, if they've got refuge right. and nothing to eat, they're probably gonna they're gonna bug out once they get hungry. And yeah, I, if I they might I'm... they might have all the food in the world, and if they're getting getting gunned daylight dark every day, they're they're probably gonna take off. I think you just brought up something that doesn't get brought up when we talk about um, habitat a lot is that, yeah, um, just as important as food and, and water and, um, you know, a place to hide um, is a safe, a safe space, I guess. Um, you, that's, that's, a, that's a very limited resource for a duck. Absolutely. You know, it even goes so far as the you know, when people are shooting the roost or blowing up the roost, whether it's ducks or Canada's or snows, I mean, if you leave them there and hunt them out in the fields, you might shoot them for a week or 10 days. But, or if you go in there and blow them off, you might get one day out of it. Right. Right. So how is it that, you, how do you alternate? Um, do you, do you make a rule like, Hey, we, we gun this hole, um, for a day or maybe two days hard or, or is it kind of does it ebb and flow how do you know when to like we got to shut this this part down it's kind of it's kind of a day-to-day thing i mean i can can watch the weather uh, when it's when it's warm they tend to not take pressure as well um, so you're you're trying to really manage your pressure you know go in and shoot them get out of there by 11 or noon let them have it the rest of the day maybe give it a day or two off before you shoot it again um like corn for example when it's cold and they're coming to it and they have to have it i mean then you're you're ramping it up you're putting a lot of pressure on them just to keep them from eating you out um yeah. but honestly what 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 we do nine times out of ten is uh we'll run traffic we've got our food sources and birds will be coming coming to those food sources off the refuge and 
we'll we'll hunt in between the two where there there hasn't been a duck land in years. Uh, like a, just a little little slough, uh, little hole in the woods, something like that. Uh, just something that has a lot of birds going back and forth over the top of it. Because then, you know, pressure is not a big thing. You can hunt it every day because there's nothing nothing wants to be in there. They're, right, they're right. resting on the refuse. They've got a safe place to eat. They're going back and forth. Uh, traffic hunting's fun too. I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's usually louder, more aggressive calling. Uh, it's just a right, more active right. hunt. You know, we've I've I've said you know you try not to to hit them in the bedroom and you try to hit them just in the kitchen or the living room, but I guess hitting them in the hallway is just as effective. So yeah, absolutely. So absolutely, uh, I would say the grand majority of ducks we kill are, are running traffic. Yeah, and that's a different. There's different strategies and techniques involved in that too that are, um, like you said, a lot more fun because they're a little bit more active. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, so you've talked about it a little bit, um, but what all food sources do you like? What What do you primarily manage there on your properties? Uh, primarily, you know, uh, manage more soil marshes. So we're looking at, at natural millets, smartweed, panicum, nutsedge. You know, all the the really good natural foods, and then we'll plant some jap millet, some buckwheat. Um, we plant quite a bit of corn and beans. Um, probably one thing that goes overlooked a lot that, that I try to manage for are bugs. You know, when it's, when it's warm, the first couple, three weeks of the season and you cut them open, their, their craws are just full of bugs. Okay. So that's actually, uh, one of the other questions I was going to ask, how do you, what do you do for that? Um, and have you ever like experimented with maybe a crustacean or like bait fish or anything like that? No, I never have, but but I know you know your invertebrates and your bugs are going to do a lot better in horizontal cover than they are vertical cover, um, which means like a natural food source that comes up, be it millet, smartweed, uh, panicum, nutsedge, that that good natural food that comes up in a properly managed wetland, I'll let it mature. And then I'll go in and brush hog it so that that cover is now horizontal on the ground. So anything less than, say, a foot of water, I'll scalp it all the way to the ground. You got all that fodder matted up, and then when when you put water on, that's it gets it really it really encourages big invertebrate blooms and, and bugs bug life. And then them ducks are are keying in on it early. And you know when you put your water on, if you can put your water on. When the average temperature is 55 degrees or warmer, you're going to get more invertebrates and, and bugs. Yeah, I think that's another. You, you kind of have to watch the, the baiting laws. Um, you don't have to watch them. You just have to know them. Um, if, if you plant something, whether it is corn, soybeans, Japanese millet, buckwheat, you cannot disturb it. Uh, so you can't. You can't go in and brush hog it. You can't knock it over while you're going to the blind. Uh, you can't disturb it at all. I mean, it's just got to be left left standing. And you know that when I was younger, I used to used to think, well, I want to disc up this entire wetland and plant it full of jap millet and buckwheat. I want food on every square inch of it, and that's great. But you got to think about what your farm looks like from the air. So most of our migrations anymore occur at night. And those ducks are flying at night. They're looking for that shimmer of water. And you might have all all the food in the world, but if they don't see water, they're not stopping. So big benefit to natural foods. And, and I've, you know, now I do, I manage more for nat- good natural foods, you know, through proper wetland management than I than I do planting millet and buckwheat. You get those good natural foods, you can manipulate them. So you can let them mature and brush hog it. So let anything under you know, eight, 12 inches of water, I'll brush hog it down to the ground. So it's showing water. It's providing excellent habitat for bugs and invertebrates. You know, it's kind of, it's a win-win. So when them ducks are migrating at night, they're seeing all the the water glimmering down there. They come down and now they've, they found water and food, so they're not going to leave. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, because I don't think a lot of people, a lot of people think about like, okay, um, they, 
they look at, you know, I got to have the best decoys and they, they say, this decoy looks really good to me. Um, and I think we completely forget that waterfowl um, are seeing things completely different from the way that our eyes work. And then not only that is you got to think, right, you said that most of the migration happens during the night. And I don't think a lot of people truly understand that. And um, that is, you know, I've, I've never even thought that, yeah, you're right. Maybe, you you, you know, you got to have that, that shimmer of the, off the moonlight or you got to be able to see that. And you can see, you can see water from the air. Um, pretty well uh, with any sort of light source, even with the stars. So, you know, it goes the, you know, just knowing or not knowing, but, but when to hunt things, I mean, on flight days, you know, days when you got new ducks, they're, they're pretty easy to kill anywhere. So on days when, when we think they're migrating at night or have just got there, or they might be coming during the day, we won't hunt any of our food sources. They'll be totally off limits, and we'll just run traffic because we want those ducks to to find them. Once they find those food sources, they're going to be there most of the year. We'll give them a couple couple days to get comfortable in there, and then we'll we'll go in and and start hunting them. Right. So I imagine that you have some sort of maps up at the lodge or at the office, um, basically showing where you've you know planted smartweed or. Um, in the natural kind of vegetation like that versus what's natural so that you know what you can cut under, um, things like that. I guess, how do you manage all these properties? Um, how do you, you know, what's the control center look like there at Habitat Flats? <laughs> it's pretty jumbled up. So it's all in my head. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I, I do all the, all the management stuff. You know, it's, it's what I love to do. Um, sitting out there sweating in the summer, you're basically just setting a buffet table not knowing how many are showing up for dinner. You're, you know, you're doing the work and you're saying, oh, it's going to look like this come fall. It's going to be pretty. It's going to be awesome. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? You know, it's, it's a lot of fun and very, very rewarding come fall when you see ducks coming into to something that you've created. But as far as, as far as the control panel and whatnot, I mean, I'll, I'll write it all down in a notebook, what I want to accomplish and, and when I want to do it. But once I'm out there doing it, I'm fortunate that I'm on the farms every day, so so I kind of know keep tabs on on where where everything's at and what I've done. Right. Okay. So I have permission on a three acre cow pond in the Midwest. Just some some prairie graze grass, uh, a couple trees, steep banks, and a dam. Landowner doesn't care if I plant or whatever I do. Um, just got to make sure that there's water there for the cows, and then obviously if I want to, you know, do any draining or any earthwork i got to run it past him first but what can i do uh starting on a hairstring budget and maybe moving on up um it's going to be tough if there's cows in it throughout the year because you can i mean it's easy to i mean a a 50 pound bag of millet might cost you 40 bucks and you can wait in the summer when some of that water's evaporated you got mud around the edges you can go around there and seed that millet, and it'll it'll come right up. And then when you get some fall rains, it'll you know that that food will be in the water. Um, right. It's going to be a little bit a little bit trickier when you got cows because they're going to eat that stuff down. Yeah, I've I've been thinking about running a little bit of um, electric fence um, along the the edges of the maybe one half this year, and then the other half the next year or something like that. Still letting them have access to it, but. Sure, and you don't. You probably don't even have to have to plant it. I mean, just by being not grazed, it's gonna it's gonna grow up in, in weeds along the edge. And most of those weeds, for the most part, if they're around water, a lot of them usually have some nutritional value. Right. I mean, it could it could be as as cheap as taking a couple hours and stringing some electric fence, and, and you've probably made it better than yeah, what yeah. it was. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess uh, moving on up from the like the you know the the hundred dollar range, um, you know what? Uh, well, moving on up, what can I do if I you know if I'm renting a pump or anything like that, or you know what would you you know tell me if if you know resources uh, money wasn't really too much of an option or too much of a consideration? Sure, I mean if you've got something that you can that you can get the water off of, you know, drain it. And there's not going to be cows and stuff in it. Then you have the ability to roll in and. And manipulate that ground, you know, you can disc it, 
and you don't have to. You can just let it get to mud and then seed it in buckwheat, millet, and that stuff's going to come up. Um, if it's big enough, you could try stripping some corn along with millet. Uh, again, I don't like having just one food source, you know, going in and planting mm-hmm. the whole thing to corn. I mean, if, if I can, if I can have some diversity, I'd like to. Right, right. And, and now, is that just, uh, you know, spread out diversity or do you try to concentrate them so that you can, um, you know, transition on those things or? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can certainly use, you know, you can certainly plant your foods to help your, to help your hunting, the location of it. Uh, for example, when I'm planting corn, I will plant, you know, say an 80 yard block of corn and then a 30 to 40 yard strip of beans and then another block of corn. And the reason for that is, you know, it's only the strips of beans are only 30 to 40 yards wide, beans or moist soil. Um, because ducks are going to land in the open water and swim into that corn nine times out of ten. So you know that when you're hunting, you got your decoys in that nice clean water that, that right. used to be yeah. beans. And um, anything that, that comes in over that strip is in range. They can't land long on you. Um, it just helps you helps you get them, get them to where – makes them finish to where you can shoot them. Awesome. 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 Uh, we got a listener question from Mike Rule. Uh, he says he has permission on a private seven-acre marsh. Um, I think it's up in near Indiana or Ohio um, that's surrounded by thousands of acres of uh, public marsh, um, which can only be hunted during certain days and until noon. Um, he really doesn't have much control over the water levels uh, on that seven acres, and he cannot till. Uh, but what are some of the things that maybe he could do um, to make the habitat more suitable slash ideal? Um, if you don't have much control over the water levels, <clears throat> I would probably look at, at doing some spraying. Um, okay. <clears throat> excuse me, spraying or, or even mowing uh, if it got dry enough to get in there, you know, and things were mature. I mean, just to, to show some water in there and, and make sure, you know, the ducks know you're there for one especially if you're surrounded by a ton of water. Um, the biggest part of killing a duck is the first, the biggest hurdle to me anyway, is just getting them over you. I mean, if you don't have them over you, then you're probably not going to kill any. Right. So right. if I had something in the middle of a big, big marsh, I would first want to make sure I had some water. Um, it can be difficult on those smaller pieces to provide enough food to compete with something bigger. And, you know, we fight that same same battle um you know like with our cornfields ducks are going to that corn and the timber in between the corn and the refuge i mean people will say what do you what are you planting there and i don't do anything i just keep it sprayed in the summer uh mm-hmm. there'll be bare dirt just because i know that i can't compete with that flooded corn all i want in there is water right you know and, and that's something that he he, he probably We'll have to watch too. You know, if we catch a late summer flood, we've got vegetation that's, you know, head high. We haven't, haven't been in there spraying it or I haven't mowed it. Um, I have, I've kind of left it unchecked. Well, now I don't have anywhere, you know, I don't have any decoy pools. I don't have any open water. So I'll kind of keep some, some places sprayed and mowed throughout the summer, you know, thinking ahead that these are going to be open water areas where I'm going to put decoys. Right. Yeah, that's that's sometimes less is more, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, so, absolutely. All right, another listener question from uh, Taylor Wasserman. He wants to know when the best time to flood a field, be it corn, millet, or, or beans, is. What's the trigger? You're going to hear a, a lot of a lot of different ideas on that. You know, some people, oh, I'm going to wait flood it when the mallards get here i'm going to do this and do that do it late when when there's more ducks and i don't want to beat me out too early and all that i'm the complete opposite i'm putting water on it as soon as i can so i'll plant early season beans so we're we're cutting them you know late september and our season doesn't open until the first part of november but i'm kicking the pumps on immediately just to put sheet water out there and it's not so that you know 
ducks are going to be in there eating my corn, but that sheet water is going to be loading up with bugs because it's warmer. Like I said earlier, if it's 55 degrees or warmer, you're going to get a lot better invertebrate blooms. So I always like to put water on as soon as I can. Uh, as long as I've got everything in check, you know, especially like on the wetlands, uh, I'll let it mature, I'll mow it, spray it, then I'll put water on it, put a little water on it for early teal season in September. Um, you know, it's great because I get to hunt early teal over it, but it's also loading up with bugs. So then regular duck season comes along, I've got a lot more food in there with the bugs. But also a big thing for me is, you don't realize how many ducks migrate early. And I mean, I'm talking September, you know, big ducks, pintails, widgeons, gabball, shovelers. Um, I'll put water on stuff so that I can hunt it for teal. I'm starting to get a lot of bugs on it, which is going to be better for, for regular season food. And I'm stopping early migrators. And for me, if I stop the early migrators, I'm going to stop the ones that come come later. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our good friend Kevin Fontenot, who is a heck of a retriever trainer and is also uh, has the Wheels on Waterfowl Project, which is designed to get uh, those people that are wheelchair-bound out into the wilderness hunting, fishing, and uh, giving them the opportunities that they might not otherwise have. So, Kevin, go ahead and why don't you start us off with our very first retriever training tip. Hey, everyone, this is Kevin B. Fontenot with Fall Flight Kennel home of the KB Retrievers with your Retriever Training Tip of the Week. Uh, this week we'll talk about how to select your breed. Know your dog's breed. Do your research. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily get on Facebook and do an opinion poll sometimes. That's not quite the best uh, way to do your research. Not to say that there's not some valuable advice out there. Uh, your lab is the most common retriever breed uh, here in the United States. Uh, need to research the breed, its history, and the standards for the breed. For example, labs only come in three colors, black, chocolate, and yellow. No cho- uh, charcoal, silver, or champagne. Uh, with the dilute gene causing this, uh, people will tell you that all oh, these dogs are fine, they can be registered, AKC, blah, blah, blah. Uh, these guys that sell these dogs are about like a very good snake oil salesman. But no matter if you do your research on your breed, the history of the breed, you'll you'll come out with you a good pup. Uh, now, Labrador by far isn't the only breed uh, out there. Uh, you need to be once you're informed. Uh, but you need to buy smart. Uh, no matter what breed you decide on. You need to check out your 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 breeder and uh, see what they've had uh, prior and previous. You don't have to go buy the most expensive dog. Uh, you don't have to buy the cheapest dog. You got to remember, you got a lot of time and money that's going to be involved in this animal over the next hopefully fourteen duck seasons. Uh, so, other breeds you might want to look at is a standard poodle, the golden retriever curly coat, flat coat, and if you're just hunting little small areas uh, where you don't need a dog to necessarily to run uh, make 200-yard retrieves, uh, although I've seen them do it, the little barking uh, is, is a fine little retriever. Uh, so, pick your dog, uh, bring him home at seven weeks old exactly. Uh, next week, We'll uh, have a little talk, and we'll get started on what we can expect and do between week 7 and 12. Uh, please stop by uh, WOW uh, and check that out. It's uh, online. Thanks. Y'all have a good week. All right, Kevin, thanks again. Um, yeah, go check out that Wheels on Waterfowl or WOW. But let's get back into our conversation with uh, Mr. Vandemore. So here we go. This is a question from one of my co-hosts that uh, he, he's out actually spraying fields today uh, for Kansas Department of uh, Wildlife. But uh, he wants to know there's a there's a fine line with migratory birds being uh, between food plots and baiting. And you touched on this already a little bit. But he wants to know um, 
how you go a, a, ahead with, you know, making sure that you're you're doing all that correctly. Because what is it? Sometimes if it if it touches the ground, then it can be considered baiting. Um, and just you know, how do you keep yourself within the law and you know keep yourself ethical? I guess with it. Sure. I mean, you you definitely you can't manipulate anything that you've planted. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whether it's corn, soybeans, millet, buckwheat, you can't go in and knock it over. Um, even if it's by accident, um, I mean, granted, I'm sure that there's, there's going to be a lot of gray area in there. You know, a dog's running through standing corn and knocks over a, a stock of corn chasing a crippled duck. I mean, you can't, you don't have much control over that. Um, right. <clears throat> but like our cornfields, we will harvest the soybean strips. So now we've got easy, clean walking out to the blind. Uh, and we've got a good place to set our decoys. We don't have to get, you know, walk out in the standing corn. Uh, millet's kind of the same way. I'll, I'll keep a path sprayed or mowed out to the blinds. That way we're not walking through anything that's been planted. Gotcha. It's, it's, it's a, a lot of gray area there, but it, it's not too hard to, you know, if you're, if you're cautious and paying attention to, to stay within the law. And the baiting thing, you know, that's, that's a big, a big issue. You know, why can you flood corn, for example, or whatever it is? And I'm not going to weigh in on that. I mean, I just, I do what's, what's within the, right, right, within the limits of the law. And, you know, it is what, it, you know, the, the, the public areas in Missouri use flooded corn. You know, they manage flooded corn and, and let people hunt it. I mean, why, why wouldn't we? Right. Exactly. So, uh, so I recently saw that on Instagram you had a youth day at Habitat Flats. Was that last year? Yeah. Uh, one of the main goals that we're trying to do for this is in maybe a few summers, we, we want to get, um, you know, a summer program going for, uh, maybe kids that, you know, maybe they do come from a hunting family or something like that, but, um, maybe, you know, some parents could, you know, see this camp that we're going to, we're going to run and send them out there and maybe they get, you know, a little, uh, the itch to, to get into waterfowl hunting and get their, you know, safety certification and that whole thing. And, but what, uh, we're having a little bit of a trouble, you know, finding youth that would be interested in going on a hunt. What's your advice or like, what do you do with your youth programs? Well, with, with ours, I mean, we, we really promoted it through social media, just to try to get, to get kids here. Um, you know, that's the, the hardest part is getting, getting kids interested in it. I mean, I would, I would look at getting together with, you know, we had a, had a shoot. Oh, it's been even before the youth camp we had, uh, that the local Quail Forever chapter put together and, and there was a ton of kids showed up. I think there's 80 or 100 kids showed up for that. Um, but work with, work with some of these local organizations that have, you know, people already out in the communities and, and good ways to find kids. I mean, say you've got, you know, you got a bunch of kids in school that hunt. Well, make them bring two friends that don't, something like that. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's it's so hard to, you know, recruit kids. I think um, maybe not recruit them, but, um, you know, they don't have control over their time they don't have any you know they don't have the the money or you know things like that so i think that's uh um i think you can make a lot of money with uh or make up not make a lot of money but you can get a lot of work done with getting their their parents involved and stuff as well uh, especially those kids that you know their parents don't hunt so, yeah absolutely absolutely i mean you know get the i mean anything you can do for the kids is is great that's for sure that's the right. you know, that's our that's what we're leaving it all to. That's who's going to take it all over. Exactly. And you're talking about family and, and ducks. You know, I I'm married and I I just I just had my first child. About she's three months old right now. Um, and then Tegan, um, yeah, he's he, his wife's pregnant right now too. How do you how do you balance or integrate um, your waterfowl life with your family life? You know, it's it's always hard because there's spend so many hours working but for me it's 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 great now um my daughter we well we've got one that's, that's eight weeks old and one that's four years old and oh, my four-year-old 
she's old enough now. She just turned four, but but even at three years old, you know, she's old enough to to come out on the tractor with me, and she loved to go and plant corn, and you know, take the take the ranger out and go with me when I'm looking at looking at wetlands and. She came out to the duck blind last year. You know, you you have donuts and hot chocolate and, and keep it interesting for the kids. Let them run the dog. We're playing with the mallard machines, throwing rocks mm-hmm, even. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just got to keep it interesting for them. I mean, yeah, it's, I know it's that, priceless, know. priceless for me to be able to take her with me a lot of days. I know they, they say, you know, oh, hey, enjoy this time when she's little. And I just like, I, I know to do that, but I just keep like waiting on the times like I can like take her out and, you know, show her the outdoors and things like that. You know, she's already been to, she's checked a couple trail cams with me, uh, before the bugs got bad, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but I am, uh, much to her mother's chagrin, I'm sure. So um, how you introduce them to it? I mean, you can't force it on them. Keep it fun. And it, right, if, right. if it's, if it's your passion and, and they're having fun doing it, there's no reason for them not to like it. Right, right. I just, I, I really hope that she's much more interested in holding binoculars than like a Game Boy or something. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, quick, you know, main discussion. I won't keep you here for too much longer. I know you got to get back to work, but um, we talked about that poor man's duck club. Uh, you know, how do I get my own little slice of heaven that is Habitat Flats? And so our, our plan is um, myself and Tegan and a few other guys, we have some, some access and some permissions some, and some family uh, that we're able to kind of do what we want with uh, on several properties um, outside of, you know, the agriculture portion and some small watersheds and ponds and fields. Uh, but we're going to do some initial development um, of the land on a, on a shoestring budget and recruit some members um, combined with, you know, letting, you know, having some weekend slots um, and some day slots, to the general public, stuff like that. But what are the foibles? Um, what are you know? What are the things that are our biggest hurdles uh, going into this kind of you know starting this duck club and um, you know what's what what are we going to run into? There's there's really not. I mean the the biggest hurdle is it's going to be a lot of work, but you know sweat equity there's, there's no replacement for it in my opinion. I mean if you're willing to put forth the elbow grease, I mean, you can you can create some great stuff out of nothing. Right, right. I mean, and, and very, you know, do it very economically. Um, you know, you can get a lot done with a, a little sprayer on a four-wheeler or, you know, a little pull-behind mower on a four-wheeler. It just takes time. <clears throat> right. But that, you know, is, is you kind of, everybody goes through different stages as hunters, and once conservation becomes a focus, I mean, you'll have just as much fun doing that off-season work as you do come duck season. And it definitely makes it a lot more rewarding. What's uh, what's what's our biggest caution? What 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 will you tell us? Like, hey, this is something you need to watch out for. This is something that, like, don't do this because I messed this up or something like that. Oh, I mean, you're gonna make mistakes. That's that's part of it. That's what makes you better. Um, you know, when you're looking at, at putting water on stuff, I think you know people tend to overlook how much you lose to soak, what I, or what I call soak, you know, getting the ground saturated enough to where it'll hold water. Right. You know, I'll, I'll run all the numbers in my head. You know, there's 325,840 gallons in an acre foot of water roughly. So I'll figure out how much my well's putting out when I need to turn it on to have X amount of water for teal season or this much water for regular duck season. But invariably you you don't factor in the soak and also the evaporation. Uh, you know, people think you lose a ton of water, everything evaporates in the summer because it's so hot. And that's true, but most of the summer you've got a lot of humidity. And what I see is I lose a lot more to evaporation, you know, in October when it's, you know, it's still fairly warm, but you don't have that humidity. So pumping, right. pumping's probably the biggest thing that that'll be your, your hurdle, you know, learning learning all that and, and the soak and just trying to stay on top of it yeah what um what was like a kind of a word of advice or something just a general comment of when you go from just just hunting 
um, as the thing that happens on the weekend and the thing that you think about during your day job to making the a, a plunge where it's your side gig or entering the industry as it were, um, you know, what's the biggest change? I mean, you gotta, I mean, you can't do it for the wrong reasons. I mean, you can't do it to make a whole bunch of money. Don't get me wrong. We're, we're definitely doing it to make money. But when we did it, I did it to, as a means to pay for my passion of creating habitat. And, you know, that was kind of our passion was, was creating better habitat, building awesome duck farms. And, you know, we didn't have any money. So there's just no other way to do it than, than through guiding. Um, but fortunately, you know, you hear all the horror stories, you know, oh my God, you're going to get burnt out on guiding and this, that, and the other thing. Big things just have, have great clients. I mean, our, our guests that come are, are awesome people. Uh, a lot of them become really good friends. You know, they're texting us all throughout the year. Did you catch that rain? Did you miss that rain? That sort of thing. Um, just mm-hmm. keep it, keep it fun. I mean, it's, don't look at it as a job. I mean, that's the worst thing if you, if you get burnt out on it and look at it as a job. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I, I love what I do. So, you know, the old saying, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Uh, it can be I'm sure it can be a fine line for a lot of people you know whether they're going to get burnt out or not but if you keep it fun and and love what you do I don't I don't think you have any trouble okay so uh, some people that are listening to this show um, this might be their first waterfowl season coming up or they might have one under their belt Um, can you give them a little parting shot a word of advice um, for their upcoming season here I mean for for beginners or, you know, folks just getting into it, I mean, the biggest, biggest piece of I got, piece of advice I have is, is concealment. I mean, whatever you think you're hitting, make it better. I mean, if they see you, you can't kill them. That and, you know, if you're just first starting out, don't have a lot of resources, you know, a lot of decoys, uh, maybe not the best caller. I mean, it takes practice. It takes years of, of working ducks to figure out what to say and when, but, you know, if you're just starting out, remember one thing. They're always going to be easier to kill where they want to be. So if they're coming coming to a field or they're coming to a marsh, uh, set up where they want to be, and, and you'll have a lot better success right off the bat than, than trying to run traffic or, you know, pull them somewhere they don't want to be. Right. right. got to do your homework. Now, you only get to go hunting one more time for the rest of your life. Where are you going? What you hunting? And uh, when and who? I hope it's a big blind. I hope it's a big blind because there's a lot of people I want to hunt with again. <laughs> I'm probably going to one of our timber holes, probably Love Lake with a 15-mile-an-hour wind and not a cloud in the sky, 35 degrees, with nice. with my girls, my wife. Nice. My grandfather, if I could bring him back, I'd give anything to hunt one more day with him. My dad, all my buddies. Like I said, it'd have to be a big blind. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Now, you get you get interviewed a lot, um, uh, and I know that, um, but uh, is there anything that, you know, you never, you don't necessarily get the chance to talk about that you, you know, anything like that? Um, Not really. Um, you know, I think, I think scouting oftentimes gets overlooked for people just starting out. I mean, you know, I kind of touched on it there a second ago, but birds are easier to kill where they want to be. But to really know the ins and outs of where they want to be, you need to need to scout. You got to put in a lot of windshield time. <clears throat> know where they're coming from, what time they're what time they're getting there. I mean, is it a is it a day roost? Are they roosting there at night? Uh, is it a food right. source? That sort of thing. I mean, the more you know about Whatever animal it is you're hunting, whether it's ducks or geese or deer or turkeys, the the higher your success is going to be. Right, right. Well, I, Tony, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, I know I've learned a lot, and I hope the listeners have too. Uh, where can they, you know, find more about your operation? And I know you got a blog, and you've got a heck of an Instagram page, um, things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, you know, our our website is habitatflash.com. Uh, I've got my website, TonyVandemore.com, but we try to 
try to really keep up on our on our social media stuff and just kind of share what we're what we're doing every day. Uh, my Instagram page is uh, at Tony Vandemore, and then Tony Vandemore Facebook, Habitat Flats Facebook. Uh, I'm usually pretty easy to get in touch with uh, as far as email. My cell phone service isn't the best, but my email is Tony at Habitat Flats. Anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out. I try to get back yeah. get back with everybody. I don't don't sleep a whole lot, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say, you know, I, I very much appreciate you coming on here, you know, with uh, whether you admit it or not, but you're, you know, pretty big staple in the industry. And um, I, uh, as, as far as if, you know, the hunting industry were a football game, I think I'd be up in the nosebleeds um, as far as, as that goes. And I just, you know, I sent you an email and heck, you left me a voicemail about 20 minutes later. And I was, uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity of you coming on here and, um, helping out, helping us reach out to. So. I appreciate you having me on. I'm no different than anybody else. I'm just fortunate and blessed that I get to do it every day. All right. Well, I will let you get back to work and uh, enjoying the the time with the family. All right. Thanks again. Enjoy that little one. Will do. Thanks. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast Group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters. Because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great-great-grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us what you don't like and we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners so all right stay safe out there and we will see you next week Head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.